It's episode 138 of the Improv London podcast. I'm your host, Stuart Moses, and this week's guest is Peter Baker. Hello. Hello, how are you? I'm very well, thank you for having me. Thank you for being here. So, you're performing in the musical version of Only Fools and Horses. That's correct. Tell me all about that. Well, it is uh, the musical adaptation of the well-loved British series that I'm sure many people are familiar with. It's on at Theatre Royal Haymarket, eight shows a week. Wow. So, um, we, uh, it, it, it's quite busy. Yeah, yeah. Some days off, which is nice. And, yeah, it's based, basically the original writer, John Sullivan, had started writing the musical before he died um, and had developed sort of a, a scene, worked out what, what episodes he wanted to base it on and had written a song with Chaz Hodges, Chaz and Dave. And his son, about, you know, a short while afterwards, found this original treatment and together with Paul Whitehouse, they've developed it into the musical that we're now doing daily. Wow. To about 900 people a night, which is fantastic. great. So, yeah, it's, um, it's great fun. It's... Uh, I think ticks all the boxes for fans when they come to see the show um, and also manages to engage people who've never seen the show. Is Actually, the first friend who came to see it is from, uh, was from Dominican Republic, not familiar with the show at all, um, but she loved it. And I think what drew her in particularly was there's still, a, alongside all the humour, there's a lot of heart to mm. the story, so, which there was in the original series. So Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's great. And I played Trigger. Oh, wow. So, which is a gift of a role. Um, not just because he's such a well-loved character, but it's, I think, the, the hit rate of laugh per line is pretty strong. Because when he does speak, it's it's usually something quite unexpected. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So you, you uh, are properly actually trained? You have training? I don't. Ah. I didn't train. I actually, I was... For many years of my adult life, I did no performing at all, other than a bit of singing, actually. Um, and I was living in Barcelona at the time, and I'd written a murder mystery dinner party game in Spanish, as they don't exist out there. And I used to work for the Agatha Christie estate. I'm quite passionate about murder mysteries. Wow. And someone who came to the test version was an actress in a Catalan theatre company and asked if I'd about a week later asked if I'd audition for their company, which I did. So I had my first uh, acting experience in a foreign language play, which was quite stressful. (laughs) But it did make me think, well, I'm going to try this. So I moved back to the UK to audition for drama schools, but didn't get in. Oh, interesting. So yes, so moved back to Bristol um, and uh, did a part-time course called Bristol Acting Academy, which is held at the Old Vic Theatre School. So it's a lot of teachers from the theatre school. Um, so you're getting really good training, just obviously in a few scant hours a yeah. week. But yeah, so then just sort of worked worked my way and then learned on the job, really. Fantastic. Yeah. And at what point did improv enter your life? Improv entered fairly quickly. I had done a short film uh, in 2015 with... Lizzie Skipiek, who is in Degrees of Error, who produced Murder, She Didn't Write. And she asked if I'd audition. And, of course, as I mentioned, I'm quite a murder mystery buff. 
Yes. So that was the draw, because actually I, I, I didn't really know much about improv. I think I had quite a stereotypical view of what improv was based on Whose Line Is It Anyway, which was something I really loved in my youth um, and I love now. But I had no idea that improv could be used to create a whole narrative, that there were all these different realms and spheres that go beyond, you know, a short form game. So I auditioned for that and learnt initially improv as a, a device for creating a narrative. Right. So I remember the first the first show that we did with Degrees of Error. They said, right, so we'll do Murder, She Didn't Write, and then afterwards we're going to do some short form. And I felt utterly terrified because I hadn't practised. Ah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I was used to choosing a character for one hour that I'm going to be able to improvise in the brain space of that character funnel you know funneling towards a narrative end um and then i discovered that you know it's, i was in safe hands yes and i got to play with gifted people Brilliant. oh yes yeah, always always helps mm. so when you uh, auditioned mm. did you go oh by the way i've actually got a load of murder mystery experience in fact I'm probably the most qualified person in the room no don't approach this this is a terrible way to approach audition <laughs> don't take audition advice from me uh, well luckily I didn't <laughs> uh, that's why you were successful yes um, no actually the I remember the audition didn't didn't if the first round didn't involve us doing anything related to a murder mystery oh, right. it was uh, exercises like park bench where one person is sitting, someone comes along. Then we had a few group scenes, and I, I, well, I know what they liked was I tried different characters, and that I gave space. And I think it was the giving space which was probably yeah useful because in uh, Murder She Didn't Write there will always be at least two or three group scenes just by nature of you're gathered for an event and at the end of the show there's always a denouement where you'll have all the characters on stage. So I think they liked the fact that I knew when to shut up. <laughs> yes. Probably. Yeah, and that's a really powerful thing uh, in auditions because I you know, can imagine that everyone's like, oh, I've, I've got to shine, I've got to like, show them what I can do. But actually, in a way, you've got to show them what you don't do. It's probably yes. as important as what you do. Yeah. And I think probably that came from... When I lived in Barcelona, I was teaching... Uh, English is a foreign language and of course you're very used to making sure that everyone in the class has a chance to speak oh wow so I think possibly in the back of my mind that maybe is where that that has come from that's a really lovely way into it yeah mm. Mm. so for those of you that haven't seen Murder She Write Murder She Didn't Write <laughs> I quite like that that could be another version Murder She Write We've had a few versions. Murder She Didn't Fright, which is the Halloween special. Oh, beautiful. Yeah. I'm still trying to push Murder She Didn't Disco Night. Yeah, yeah. But for some reason they haven't bit. Murder She White, which is set in the first book of the uh, Lord of the Rings, mm. uh, in which uh, Frodo and his friends awaken the the, uh, the uh, Barrow White's uh, tomb. That would be uh, quite niche. That would probably require a lot of explaining and yeah. possibly some prosthetics. Yeah, 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 that's a good point, yeah. yeah probably don't do that one. <laughs> so, uh, for, uh, for people who haven't seen Murder, She Didn't Write, um, if, and they, as they enter the theatre, what can they expect? 
because it's theatres. It's proper theatres. It theater, is theatre, yes. Yeah, it's... Um, what we promise is, an, is a... Yeah, it's a night of improvised theatre. It's, it's a murder mystery delivered very lovingly with lots of respect for the genre, but with a lot of laughs. And obviously it's all unprepared. The only aspect of the show that stays the same are our costumes. So in a way very similar to Pluto. So I'm always wearing green, but that I could be Graham Greene, the esteemed writer, or I could be Signor Berdi, the Italian opera singer. I was once a Russian weightlifter, which for those of you who know what I look like would (laughs) (laughs) understand that is definitely not my casting. Um, So you come in, you have, we welcome the audience. You've got period music playing from the 20s and 30s. You have a detective on stage. We have our improv pianist um, tinkling the ivories. And you're invited to recount the the, the facts of a case. So it's a case that's happened. But of course, we take suggestions from the audience, which are chosen by Jerkins, the audience, uh, the detective's assistant, who is plucked at random from the audience, who stays in their seats. Don't, 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 don't worry. You don't have to go on the stage. <laughs> and we take an event or an occasion, the reason why suspects are gathered, and an adjective and an object. So it right. becomes the case of the adjective object. The last one was the case of the pink red Wellington boots with red hearts on. So you know we get quite a quite a mix of suggestions which are not necessarily period specific sometimes so as well that uh sets us a challenge <laughs> yes. sometimes um and then we 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 start a story you know we start a story uh two people come often two people start the show and they they get to build the world and then the rest of us sort of can look to see where we can fit in what's missing and then after a after enough time has been given to establish the world uh the t- detective pauses the action and um, someone chooses from the colour cards as to which one of us is the victim and ah, which one is the killer. Nice. Yeah. So is it a good thing or not if your colour is chosen? Well, I think it depends. I think there are certainly, there are certainly days where uh, I've wanted to be chosen to die I'm thinking particularly in uh, particularly when um when I was I, I had a bad back for a while. Oh really? And if you were chosen to die, you get to set yourself in a death scene, obviously for when you're discovered. And and I was hoping so that I could just sit down, essentially, <laughs> and that hopefully you know there wouldn't be after the death there are flashbacks and the character. Oh right, can so you can still back. be involved. So you can still seat. be involved. Oh, right, yes, yeah, yeah. but but yes, I had uh, yes. Yeah, so. <laughs> That's one occasion where I've wanted to die, um, but no, I think I think it's 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 fun. I do remember making a a mistake. I think in probably my first show, and I hadn't really as my character. I hadn't really established many connections with the other characters early on. Which, of course, had I been chosen as the victim it would have made it quite difficult for everyone else and myself to sort of work out why I might have been. Yeah, yeah. But even when that does happen, it's, it's, it, it can often end up with some quite exciting motives, which is obviously, which becomes quite thrilling for the audience watching. So how, I'm just trying to sort of picture mm. the chronology of this. Mm. So the detective is on stage at the start. Yes. 
And are we seeing flashbacks into... Yes, in a sense, what you're watching is one giant flashback with flashbacks involved. So so the detective will present it as the premise that the crime has happened. Right. And so we then see the events leading up to the crime with further flashbacks to previous scenes with the victim. Right. Okay. I've made it sound far more complicated. <laughs> <laughs> Probably. But but we but we so yeah, so so yeah, so we have the detective, we flash back, then we, we meet um we sort of have the, the sort of the platform where everything's mm. normal. Yeah. And then the murder takes place. Then the murder takes place, which is not seen, so the body is discovered. Right, okay. Because then the how it was committed becomes yes. part of the mystery that you've solved. Yes, and then the very end of the show is the denouement when the detective, who has the unenviable task, unenviable task of uh, picking up all the clues that we've thrown out throughout the show and wrapping it together into uh, uh, a concrete denouement where he is able to eliminate suspects and talk about how the crime was done. Wow. So it's great fun. And, and there, there are times where... Uh, so I've, I've been detective and there have been times where it, it's got to... 45 minutes in and I thought, oh dear God, how am I going to do this? And then, you, and then of course, you know, uh, you always do. Yeah. I mean, I imagine that even if your explanation of everything isn't watertight, mm. um, just remembering the things that have happened, yes. you kind of get, yes. you know, rewarded for that. Yes. And it's the sort of thing where the audience, the audience are smart, the audience aren't performing, so they've got a lot more bare brain power. Yeah. But they will, I think, probably come up for reasons or explanations if there was anything that yeah. didn't quite tie up. Yeah. I think they would, yeah. you know, they would do some other work for you, I think. Yeah. Now, usually it, it really ties up and, and often what, what surprises us on... There have been times on stage where us as improvisers in the scene are listening to the detective talk and we think, oh, oh dear God, he or she has missed something they've got the wrong person they've 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 gone off track and then you real then they surprise us by bringing in Ah. something that we'd thrown away as being inconsequential which turned out to be the linchpin of the well summation of the crime so it's funny it keeps us all on our toes yeah that sounds like the sort of thing that it would be really difficult but once you've got the ability to do it it must be hugely satisfying yeah yeah cool and there's a new a new show from Degrees of Error? Yes, so Degrees of Error, just before Christmas, we, we started working on a new show that would uh, give us freedom to do some of the things that we don't get to do in murder. For example, in murder we're always playing the same character for one whole show. Um, we're, there are certain format beats we have to hit. There has to be a death. There has to be... Uh, denouement. So we had a brainstorming session. It was a pitch meeting where people could pitch various suggestions. And Stephen Clements, who's one of the founders of Degrees of Error, he suggested fairy tale ending, which was inspired by a board game, which I think is called Once Upon a Time. I don't know if you played it, where you have various... The card game? Yeah. Yes, yes, I have played actually, yes. Various cards you have to fit in, and it was inspired by taking the final line of a story, of a fairy tale, and 
that's the only thing you take from the audience at the beginning, and then you have to build towards that final oh, line. Interesting. So it's great. It means we get to do multi-rolling. Um, we play a lot with narration and scene painting as well. Um, and just a chance as well to be a little sillier, to play goblins, fairies, witches, dragons. Um, I, I played I played a lizard for quite a while. Really? <laughs> for a long time in one show. That was fun. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's very joyous, a very joyous show. And they have more dates coming up, I believe, in uh, the summer. Cool. Check the degrees of our yes. website for details. Yes, because exactly. that's the most efficient way of communicating when show dates are. Definitely. <laughs> so, is it sort of fairly sort of traditional fairy tales? Or? No. So, as well, we're playing with um, archetypes. So, they're they're obviously you have the archetype of the wicked stepmother, but it might be male or the the the. Um, the prince or the the ugly sisters, but they're mixed gender or anything like. That. So we, we we sort of take that and play with them, and it doesn't actually have to be period either. Ah, interesting. So in one rehearsal, um, it was, it was contemporary, and I think it was, it was almost like a Wall Street yeah, setting, yeah, yeah. you know, sort of big business and oh, wow. so forth, but still with those archetypes in. Yeah. And costuming wise, the only instruction was to come dressed like a fairy. <laughs> so we had a, a range from goth fairy to um, full on raver disco fairy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it was it was fun. It was just very silly fun. <laughs> Fantastic. Yeah, I really like the idea of taking fairy tales and mm. yeah, you know, casting them in the contemporary times or yeah. because they are so familiar, you sort of instinctively know the structure. So hopefully it's not too difficult, but then take them somewhere else because you've still got that backbone to work with. So yeah. Yeah, that sounds super cool. And closer each day, the improvised soap. Tell me about that. Yes, so that is the other show, uh, or the other company I'm a member of, albeit on hiatus at the moment. Closer each day is the world's longest improvised narrative. So it, we found out recently that it had reached that pinnacle because um, our improv godmother is Patty Styles, who is obviously, you'll know from Dynasty, um, which we thought was the longest running soap opera because, of course, they're the ones who who started it, really. Um, but when she came to do a session with us, she told us that they reset every season. So every season it's a new story, a new uh, world, new characters. So, yes, we are actually the world's longest running improvised narrative. It's started in 2011 at the Wardrobe Theatre, which I don't know if you know, it's a um, theatre venue in Bristol, which has been coincidentally going since 2011. It's closer each day, was the first show. Oh, wow. And it's, yeah, it's a wonderful venue space linked to Tobacco Factory, which is one of the bigger theatres in Bristol. And it hosts shows like Police Cops in Police Cops in uh, Space, yes. you know, Wolverine, How to Win Against History, Impromptu Shakespeare performed there as well. Degrees of Error with Murder She Didn't Write. We always do that there. And it was essentially an idea of Tom Brennan, who's a member of the Wardrobe Ensemble, who also tour a lot. And a casting call was put out for interested artists. And the idea was to do an improvised soap. So it started as something quite 
silly and throw away, but then eventually built up a cult following. And over the years, we've all worked really hard to make it as much like a soap opera as possible. So a lot of research, watching soaps. Really? Um, we met with um, the screenwriter for uh, EastEnders and Doctors. He'd come to see it. And so we met and had a chat with him just uh-huh. about... So, you know, the parameters and the guidelines that uh, script writers are given when writing for soap. And that actually there are, the more you study soaps, the more you see that there are some quite different, each show has a particular schematic, almost. Um, EastEnders is quite unusual, is it? It can be quite varied. Sometimes you get a show that's just really based around one character. And other shows have quite a rigid formula that they follow. And... Yeah, it's it's great. I was in it for two and a half years, and um, my character sadly died. Oh no! Yes, it was uh, quite traumatic. It, I did grieve the and character, it, and this was planned in advance because. Well, it's interesting because obviously, as given the nature of the show, you're always going to have a slightly rolling cast, people who can commit to the whole thing. I think we've there's only one person who's been in it since the beginning. Um, however, there are people who were in it at the beginning, have their characters have died, they've come back. For example, um, Alice Lamb has come back as her character's daughter, or so forth. People come back and go. And in the time that I've been in it, there are people who've left, and we've always said, "Well, let's, oh, let's make sure, let's make sure that you get a big exit, do this." But obviously, as you know from improv, you can't plan. You can go in. Yeah aiming to have a big exit yeah but we found there were probably about three or four characters who ended up their last episode had a big storyline but then they sort of just went off and maybe they're traveling or at university because you can't once you're in that narrative and you get to say the 50 minute mark the story you know that narratively you need to deliver the end of say storyline b yeah and that that the character who's leaving isn't it doesn't make sense to have a big a big death so what happened with my final episode is that I everyone sort of talked about me dying and we imagined that Pablo my character would die it's like you know he'd been near death twice so um, just thought it, it's going to happen it's going to happen as we got closer and closer to the day I realised I do not want my character to die oh, I couldn't wow. I really didn't want to let go of him and we saw in the workshop we come in because we have occasional props that we use and so forth so uh, you know an hour before we open we obviously get together and we're warming up and so forth and someone said oh I've brought along this gun I'll leave it here. And I saw the gun and I thought, oh, dear God, no. Dear God, no. So this is the one time I feel a bit guilty of planning and, and, you know, and working. But I thought to myself, I need to get that gun to control the narrative so I don't get killed. So I did in, I mean, you know, it, 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 it wasn't that tenuous. There was a, I went and grabbed this, gun in say the third scene because my character was quite uh um had a lot of nervous nervous a lot of anxiety nervous tension and um 
there was a, a slightly villainous character and who was threatening violence against someone else. So I thought, well, I'll grab the gun. And I thought, this is great. I've got the gun. No one can kill me now. <laughs> and of course, you know, as with Chekhov, you yeah. know, if you bring out a gun, someone yeah. has to die. And yes, turns out I couldn't work out how, how to fire it. <laughs> so anyway, so I ended up, but still, I, I, I was battling. I was trying whatever I could throughout the show not to die. Wow, that's really interesting. Yeah, it was very weird. It was a very weird experience, that final show. And sort of a unique experience in improv. Yeah. Like, how did your character die in the end? Well, Well, the synopses are all up. Um, so um, there was a love triangle. And one of the characters involved was this villainous guy. And he had found the gun that I'd dropped because I wasn't able to fire it at the portrait of my dead mother. <laughs> um, and so it's a final scene. It was the, the three of them on stage and he'd got the, gullet and, uh, got the gun and he'd said, right, well, one of you is going to have to pay for this. And I just thought, oh, this. so I, I just ran on to, tr- to wrestle the gun off him and was shot in the stomach. Wow. And I couldn't do a death scene because I felt so emotional that I I just died straight away. Wow. And it was just fade out, fade out to black. So it was, it it was horrible. It was horrible. Everyone was saying, Oh, we thought you were going to have a dramatic death scene. I "I couldn't do anything. It was horrible. It was horrible. That sounds amazing. Yeah. But it was great fun. I would recommend it's, it's a really interesting exercise improvising for that length of time within uh, the framework of a character. Yes. Because obviously, the further you develop along the show, the more rounded that character becomes and the more that character has a set of principles. So, for example, mine was had a, was, was quite moralistic. Had very, you know, wouldn't, wouldn't, believed in right and wrong, believed in fairness. Um, and how that, that can, that will influence how you respond to an offer in scene as yeah, well yeah. and as well just uh it's quite a challenge as well and an interesting way to think about making storylines last say for example with relationships often the instinct i think with a relationship is to have drama happening within the relationships and actually relationships end up not lasting very long because you're using that you, you view that as being for a storyline whereas actually getting to the place where you can be in a relationship and that just be part of your platform for other storylines to happen is also quite interesting. I'm really, I'm really fascinated by that, the, um, the having longer periods of time to spend with characters. Yeah. You know, so there's obviously the improvathons that go on. Oh, yes. um, just thinking about you know, having more space and more time with the characters, I think it's yeah. really fascinating. Yeah. So with Closer Each Day, it was an ongoing story. Yes. So people could come along to, you know, all the episodes and they yes. would see one ongoing story. Yes. That's, I do think that's an amazing thing to do. It's, it, it's really great. I mean, it, it's, it's got quite a well, very strong following in Bristol. There are people, I think, who've seen most of the shows. And then there are even people who just come along for one show, it's still a contained... Yeah. There'll, there'll be a contained... Like with most soaps, you can have a contained yeah. narrative, but they'll... There's also an ongoing story. Yeah, and there might be a little cliffhanger yeah. for something or or you want to come along. And also people coming 
tend to get quite invested in the characters. So after one show, I remember someone saying, I can't believe Pablo did that. I didn't think he would. <laughs> so, you know, people start to have their own relationships and impressions of the characters. And it's really interesting. So you can... It also means as an improv show, it tends to stay in your head a little more. So you, So the decisions and the choices you make on stage, you live with them a little bit longer because you think, oh God, I didn't think that would happen because obviously you do end up imagining what's going to happen to your character but as we know with improv things can change in a heartbeat so. yeah so what's the sort of setting for closer each day so it's a small town called Newtown on the south coast um someone is working on a map of it at the moment as uh, it keeps gaining new landmarks <laughs> it's geographically quite interesting um <laughs> And it's it's just a look at the residents and inhabitants. Um, so you might go to one show, not all the inhabitants are there. Um, sometimes you go to another show, it's the full kit and caboodle. They had the 150th episode just recently and they managed to bring back a lot of people who've been in it over the years and did... Actually, it was almost like a... It was almost like a clip show version. So you, you, you had... Um, two characters reminiscing and picking. That was one, one occasion where we were taking things out of the hat. So you, you, you look at a story from the past. So that, that was really good fun. Oh, so they would actually... So the so the, the things you take out of the hat were previous things that had happened in the... Oh, no, just audience suggestions. Oh, right, of yeah. things that, that could have that happened. That could have happened, oh, right, yeah. Because okay. I was thinking, yeah. are you recreating actual improv oh, no, scenes from that the would past. Be difficult. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. But also terrifying. Yeah. Ah, right. Now that's I think that's a really lovely sort of twist to the format. Yeah, and for Halloween we tend to do a Simpsons style treehouse of horror. So but that's non canon. Non canon. That happens exactly. outside the normal yes. continuity. And again you take suggestions from the audience. So once one was Pablo Scissor Hands. <laughs> so my character was a, a a hairdresser, so yeah. Yeah. Oh, wow. interesting. And are there, do you find yourselves returning to the same locations because there's always the rover's return? Or Yes, we do have set locations. So when you choose your character, which you do generally without letting anyone else know. So when you join, you you get, um, this is this is actually, I think it started with my joining, that um, the character gets a space to have their first scene on their own. Or if it's two people starting together, they can start. Um, just to give a little chance for them to platform a character. Uh, one of the things that I was encouraged to do was to have a setting. So initially what I wanted to do was 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 play, I think I wanted to play a sort of quite studious, uh, slightly neurotic um, counsellor. But I uh, was encouraged that a salon, by you know, that a hair salon would be a good place that people could come. So I just did that character, but as a hairdresser. <laughs> was essentially, I was still bookish. I was still neurotic. So, so that was really good fun. But it's funny because other characters. So, for example, someone walked. They learned very quickly that someone had thought about you know creating this great character you want to do. He walked on stage and said to the, uh, someone who's already in the show, ah, Constance, I didn't expect to see you. And she turned around and said, ah, my nemesis. Whereas he thought he was going to go in and be her yeah. brother or something like that. So it's, it's, it's funny. 
Oh, my nemesis is my favourite reaction to uh, any uh, <laughs> anyone arriving yes. on stage. Yes. <laughs> but it's really interesting what you've done with your character, um, may he rest in peace, um, in that having a nerdy, bookish kind of psychiatrist, mm. it, it all makes sense, but yeah. isn't it more delightful to have the nerdish and bookish, but then have them, you know, as a hairdresser yeah. sort of thing, and that's like... yeah. No, it ended up being being great where when I started branching out into massage, but because I'm terribly repressed, <laughs> it was quite difficult, you know, all that. Yeah, it, it provided a lot of fodder. Definitely. And you mentioned the schematics for the different soaps. Is there mm. a schematic for closer each day? Um, there's... There, there are... We've played around with different uh, schematics and... So when we say schematics... A format, I suppose. Yeah. yeah. Well, I suppose, that, say you look at something like, um, for example, Doctors tends to have ongoing storyline, story of the day, and and then a, a third plot that's that's almost just like world... Just world build... World fulfilling. Yeah. yeah. Um, so possibly we, we might end up closer to that sometimes in a show sometimes it might be a, an a b c storyline so it's it can be quite varied and again that's something we tend to instinctively work realize what we're doing on the on the night yeah so you don't have a strict formula that you're following no yeah. no brave but strong brave <laughs> but strong that sounds amazing I, I i really would like to see that um has while you were in that show, did it make you love watching soaps more or less? Did you watch them going, yeah, it's good, but it's not as good as what we did? Well, I mean, I have to say, yes, of course, the latter. <laughs> <laughs> I do think we are the pinnacle of her. No. Um, I did have a uh, period many years ago when I was uh, a bit addicted to EastEnders. So I always fear watching soaps in case I get drawn, drawn in. But yeah, I do. So I do watch them now with a with a slightly more analytical mind. So I uh, I find that improv has retroactively, retrospectively, um, meant that a lot of time that I thought I was wasting of my life actually mm. turned out to be preparation for improv. Oh, definitely. Yeah, I think. Um, well, that's what surprised me when I started doing Murder She Didn't Write and started learning improv was that I realised I'd been using improv quite a lot without realising it. Um, obviously in acting, uh, so with a lot of the acting games that you do are, are improv games, essentially. With devising when you're creating a new show, that is born out of improv. Um, and then even with the, the teaching sometimes, you know, if, particularly with one-on-one -on -one lessons, when you're you're basically teaching the student what they need based on what they're giving you. So you're responding in that sense. Um, so yeah, it, it's quite incredible the amount of areas that improv is actually used and that you're actually doing it on, or that doing improv improves your interactions in daily life. Yes, well. yes. Um, you mentioned devising, using improv as devising. Is this something you're particularly interested in? Yes, it is. It's um, So the... Uh, the wardrobe theatre, which I mentioned before, they um, they generate their own material as well. So they every year they have a Christmas show, which runs for, it's like an anti Christmas show, which runs for about nine weeks of the year. So 
past ones have been Goldilocks Stock and Three Smoking Bears, uh, Oedipus in Boots, um, Reservoir Mogs, another good one. I'm seeing a pattern. <laughs> yes. So they, and all of those are born out of devising. So all the, the, the actors with um, the director and, and probably a dramaturg as well, someone who's going to maybe draw it all together, working together, devising, creating in in the early R&D research and development stages you're probably bringing in a few other people as well just to bounce ideas around and start to form a structure and then as you go on with the rehearsal process you've got that freedom to improvise a few gags and often they end in and sometimes things that happen on stage because often in this quite in this looser structure you probably find in some shows you've got about five percent of the show where there's room to improvise or throw yeah. things in and often those things stick and they become part of the show so that's really really good fun and we devised a show last year called parlor games um where i played queen victoria fantastic so it's about victoria and albert in 1948 with the threat of revolution and that all came out of devising and playing games initially playing various parlor games and seeing how we can relate those to political machinations. Mm. I'll have to ask you to explain that in a little bit more detail. Uh, well, basically, the, 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 the plot is Albert trying to talk to Victoria about the threat of revolution and for her to take it seriously, and Victoria only wanting to be distracted from it. Right. So they decide to play games. Albert decides to appease her by playing games, but through the games... He's using the games to get his point. Oh, across. that's really nice. So, yeah, that, that was great fun. Great fun to do. And that was actually working with people that I all knew from closer each day. So we've had that familiarity. We've had, you know, years of playing together, knowing what delights each other, excites each other. So it was a very easy process to make the what ended up being a scripted show because which all of us, you know, had a hand in writing, so... That sounds amazing. Yeah. And you've also dabbled in immersive theatre. Tell yes. me about that. Yes, yes, so um, I did a couple of shows for um, a micro-theatre festival, which, um, for anyone who doesn't know, micro-theatre actually originated in Spain, and it's um, basically the concept of tapas theatre. So you have these 15-minute shows oh, wow. all happening in the same venue at slightly different times and you can buy a ticket for one for three it's slightly cheaper for five you can go have a drink at the bar you can go have something to snack on so it's 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 a very digestible way of seeing new work which i think is a really good idea and it, it's caught on massively in spain because people are often a little reticent about going to the theatre and, and testing things that they've not read co you know, copious reviews about. Yeah. So microtheatre is a really, really good way of getting people engaged. And what's great about the concept is you end up at the bar and you overhear someone talking about the show they've seen in room one, and then you talk to them about the show you've seen in room three, and then they can go and yeah. see something else. So I did two pieces, and one was... Particularly, well, both used improv. Uh, one was um, confessions of a inmate. So I'm using 
it was in a cell. I was in a prison cell, hence thinking of that. And I would confess to crimes that were inspired by objects taken off the audience. So the story would be... So I would weave those objects in, they became the evidence. Did and you not it, just end up getting lots of water bottles? I well, I, yes, I've got a few. Because <laughs> <laughs> I love that idea, but it's just yeah. like having been in a group that have done that, it's like, oh, look, here's somebody else's water bottle. Uh, and it's like, do you know what? I think I... I I don't recall. Get, I mean, it was a couple of years ago. No. I, I don't recall what I remember. I remember. I got a shoe. <laughs> clothing came in, so that, that would it uh, clipboard. So that that was really fun. That ended up inspiring some great characters. And the good thing about that was people would come back and discuss it. But the second one that was probably felt even more immersive and interactive uh, was called Doctor Weitzman will see you now, and it's a therapy session. So you come in, I have my nurse, Nurse Wyman, whose name I always get wrong, hence the hesitation. <laughs> um, and it's, it, it, so the setting is 50s, 50s psychiatry. And bringing the audience in and you use the, it, you're demonstrating your, or Dr. Weitzman's advanced ideas on group therapy. Interesting. And that was one of the most enjoyable things I think I've, ever done because of course you're, you're completely based on your audience and I was at a late time slot so I had somewhere it'd be full this is again in a prison cell so you can squeeze in about 15 and I had one show with one person Wow! <laughs> and it was my favourite show ever because I, I, I just ended up getting so up close and personal with him uncomfortably so as, <laughs> as fitted the character and yeah with that one we had a loose narrative structure so there was a very clear ending so which um a, a twist ending, which was quite good. Um, but the great thing was that was just seeing people loosen up and having to interact with each other as well. So I'd, I'd always include one game where they had to interact with each other. I mean, basically just got them to stare at each other. Oh, yeah, and it's yeah. amazing how that yeah. just generates laughter or people are uncomfortable with just, you know, close eye contact. Um, so, yeah, it really interests me how we can use improv to to just be free and, and easy with an audience as yeah. well. So I do really enjoy anything where I have to interact with an audience member and I don't know what I'm going to be given is, is quite thrilling. Yes. Yeah. And I think if you can do that in a sort of an improv way rather than a stand-up way so that the person yes. feels, you know, cherished and, you know, loved rather than uh, picked upon is... Yes. Really lovely thing to do. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. It's very different from stand-up scenario. I've, I've, yeah, it's. I've tried many different things, but I don't think I could ever do yeah. stand-up. It seems quite scary. Well, I do a bit of teaching, and I, you know, if you make a joke while you're teaching, then the laughter is a bonus. But ultimately, there to teach people. I worry yeah. if I did stand-up, they might come away educated but not laugh. <laughs> so you know. Also, I like being on stage of other people and I like the way in which you can create more together yes. than you could individually. Yeah. So that's, yes. that's why I love improv rather than stand-up. Yes. I think with that, with Dr. Weitzman, it, it, with a couple of shows, some people weren't sure how many people were in the cast. Oh, really? Because they thought some of the audience were cast. Oh, and that wow. was really that was one of the best responses I think I've had. Like, yeah. when they think that that's some of those audience members were were 
performance and actors. Was I mean, that's much better than, oh, you must have stripped about that. You know, that wasn't really made up. Yes. If they think some of the audience are part of the cast. Yes. <laughs> that's amazing. Yeah, that was fun. How, if someone were to step on stage of you. Yes. What could they do to delight you? Oh, um, I, th- I well, I probably to delight me, they would just give. I, I suppose a sense of uh, emotional character. I'm, I'm quite. I enjoy emotional responding to to things emotionally. If someone came and said, "I've got a great plan," I'd probably go. <gasps> that was a sharp intake of breath uh, and a hand to the chest Um, (laughs) but if 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 somebody yes if somebody gave me a strong emotional offer that would probably delight me or even a small one yeah it doesn't have to be strong I did a uh, uh, did some Meisner work I don't know if you've you've ever done any Meisner which which I think is very linked to to improv and and just for anyone that hasn't do you want to just explain what you what it what it meant to you? Oh yes, yeah, so so Meisner, um, what it means to me is uh, fundamentally just just giving everything to your all your focus to your partner and ev- everything you, you're 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 looking at your partner and you're taking your feelings your responses entirely from them. So some of the early stages of Meisner can seem quite repetitive and 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 maybe a little bit silly when you're doing an exercise saying maybe you're just using the same line back and forth to each other but you can generate fascinating scenes fascinating scenes to watch and I think as a process it's it's in terms of how it applies to scripted work it it helps you to stay present in the scene even when you're delivering lines that you've maybe said 50 times in a show so the lines that you know inside out making them feel like it's the first time you're saying them because it's the first time you're saying them to the person you're you're with in scene and I think uh so the workshops we did with Patty Styles as well I felt a lot of her exercises really resonated with me in that sense and uh so that's possibly what what delights me yeah and I think particularly having worked in two shows that are quite narrative it's also it's also very helpful to to use emotions to fuel the story as well even hesitation yeah someone hesitates it's like why (laughs) why are you hesitating what are you hiding (laughs) fantastic what would you say is your signature move what is it that you do that saves the day brings the house down has everyone going classic Peter <laughs> um, well uh, probably something bizarre no <laughs> <laughs> go on no explore, I, that, explore that train of thought doesn't okay. have to be true just explore that train of okay. thought well only with people I'm very comfortable with <laughs> so people who know me quite well I uh there seemed to be a period of shows where, for some reason, I seemed... Oh, no, I don't know if I can tell this. <laughs> I was going to sound too bad. <laughs> Everyone's going to think I'm a strange predator. But no, so uh, there was... It started with a show where I was allergic to water. And 
as you as you do. And um, we had a flashback to a colleague, and I said, "Wes, well, I was giving her a bath earlier that day, and I." just started to very slowly lick her arm. I think we should probably not tell this story. It sounds a bit... She, she was fine with it. She really was. We've, we've all licked each other a degree. <laughs> it sounds even worse now. Well, I think as long as there's consent. As long as exactly, there's though. Enthusiastic and ongoing... Well, not necessarily... Uh, I'd say ongoing <laughs> consent. I think enthusiastic consent, which you'll be aiming for, but at least ongoing yes, consent, that yes, that's all right. And that's, yes. that's part of being in a group. That's one of the lovely things yes, about being in a group, yeah. is that you find out whether someone is comfortable to be licked or not, and then yes. you respect those boundaries. Yeah. I mean, it sounds really... Yeah, even now framing the words, it sounds terrible. Yes, they, I mean, there was one show where I think we all licked each other. <laughs> again, it sounds very bad. Is that one of the shows where it's more fun to be in than it is to watch? Oh, no. I mean, I think... The audio, it was, it, it, it took a while to get it back on track, I think. <laughs> the audience were all a bit... And I presume there was some sort of plot reason or some sort of... It, the licking didn't just sort of spontaneously break out. No. It, it, there was some plot reason for it, so it was justified licking. It was justified licking. I'm, I'm trying to... It was something to do about facial blindness. And the only <laughs> way to recognise something, I can't remember. <laughs> I think I'm never going to emphasize anyone again after this. Well, I think I think you know as long as there is consent, as long yes. as there's been a discussion of boundaries, yeah, as long as it doesn't happen every show, no, because that could get tiresome. No, it didn't. No, no, it, it. I think there was. Yes, I definitely put the kibosh on it. <laughs> but um, and boundaries and consent is something we always check. So with the recent murder gigs, because some of us have been away, so one colleague was in Australia with impromptu Sherlock then a few others are off to Korea so we've drafted in a few new players who so um, I'll always ask we always ask what are the boundaries and uh, yes so would never lick them no no no. You need to advise me for at least a year before (laughs) that happens it's good it's good to know yes I think that's fine I think that's fine I think that's good and on that note, all I have to do is to say thank you for being a guest on the Improv London podcast. Welcome. I made this. That's improv! <laughs>